0: Well, again, welcome. I appreciate you being here. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome everybody online that's joining us as well. I trust that this morning will be uh, encouraging. Uh, we're in our study of the Gospel of John and in chapter 6. And so if you have a Bible and brought one with you, I encourage you to turn to John 6. Um, if you need some help with that, uh, it's on uh, page 1,125 of my Bible. Uh, And let me ask you this question just as we get started. Have you ever started a project and realized once you got into it that it's more than what you planned on? You you, you started started the work, you started the labor, and all of a sudden you realized, whoa, this is... I don't know if I signed up for all of this. Yeah? When when, when you're in those moments and, and you realize this is... Like this sounded like a good idea on the front end, and it seems like this was clicking along, but all of a sudden, this is this is a lot more than what I what I bargained for. You, you got one of two options, right? What what are those options? You can just stop. Fail? It's fail? Yeah. A bail? Yeah. You can just stop, just quit. Like I'm 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 done. Like this is this is more than I thought. I, I didn't sign up for everything that this is this entails right now. And I, I'm just going to walk away, right? That's an option, and and some of us have taken that option a few times. But the other option is to what? Is. Commit, get get her done. Just like, all right, this I didn't see this on the front end, but I, I'm not going to back out now, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's there's a lot of similarities with the Christian faith. A lot of similarities with the Christian faith. A lot of people you know sign up you with church and think they're signed up with Jesus and and it's all good on the front end um, but 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 then you realize that maybe something more is required than just signing up and, and we got two options it's just too much I'm, I'm gonna look for some better options somewhere or to say oh it's this is what you're talking about. Well, where else am I going to go? I'll stay right here with Jesus. That, that's the section that we're in in John 6. So John 6, verses 24, starting in verse 24 uh, and, uh, and 25, the Bible says this. Now, this has happened the day after Jesus feeds the, the, the 5,000 men, 20,000 people total. This is the day after. Then that night he walks on the lake and goes, uh, walks on the water and goes across the lake. This is, this is the next day. And the Bible says in verse 24 and 25 once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor disciples were there at the place where they, they ate the day before, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. Like they're looking for him. When they found him on the other side uh, of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, it, it, we would normally see that as they went in search for Jesus. That's a good thing, right? I'm not tricking you. Like, when, when people are searching for Jesus, that's we would call that a good thing, right? Yeah. Because you could search for a lot of other things other than Jesus, it'd be a bad thing. So they're searching for Jesus, which... is. It's just a good thing. There are a lot of people in church searching for Jesus. That's a good thing. Jesus says, you look for me, you'll find me. You know, and so it's good. But but Jesus quickly discerns why they're searching for him, which isn't necessarily a good thing. And so let's just understand what's happening in that context and and what Jesus is, is really dealing with. Why were they looking for him? Because they were hungry. He fed them the night before. Well, you know what it's like when you wake up the next morning after you have a good, you're you're hungry. And so they they want a little something, something from them. They're looking like, and so Jesus realizes, and he'll say it flat out in a minute. "You're You're looking for me for the wrong reason. What he starts to do, and he's going to push into them in a minute. He starts to force them to come to terms with the nominality of their faith. I was just reading this week and I came across this study, and, and they were they were this one group was studying churchgoers. Now, this is probably about other churches, not our church. So. Uh, and what they just, what they came up with is this like they defined what a Christian is by behaviorally. So, they weren't talking about putting faith in Jesus. They are talking about once someone's put their faith, like what behavior, what are the behavioral signs that one is a Christ follower? And so they defined it kind of this way attend church worship weekly, give sacrificially, uh, serve regularly, and witness faithfully. Okay, so they said, okay, so, so, so if one's going to follow Christ after that step of faith, then that life is going to be marked by those who attend weekly, uh, give sacrificially, serve regularly, and witness faithfully. And here's what they found. 22% of those church people would be considered avid Christians who actually attend weekly, give sacrificially, serve regularly, and witness faithfully, 22%. And 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 in their research, they found that 19% would be considered moderately committed. Moderately committed. Means that most Sundays, if there's not something better going on, got something else to do, then there'll be a church. Moderately committed. That who give, but not nearly sacrificially. Who, who who, probably aren't, they're not going to serve regularly, but, but when something, something special comes up, then they'll jump in and help. You know, so they're not, they're, I mean, complete consumers, just partial consumers. Uh, and, and, and they'll witness when it's like super easy and convenient and really not go out of their comfort zone, like admit they go to church. <laughs> and, and then they found that 29% are nominally committed, that uh, they'll be in church unless the weather's really good and, and, and they want to go to the coast. Um, they, they really don't give sacrificially at all. Like maybe if uh, they feel super convicted and, and they might look at what they carry with them in their wallet because they know they don't carry much. Uh, they, 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 they don't serve at all, really. Really just consuming. Uh, and um, there's really no witness. 29% of people in church. That's why I said this is probably about other churches, not ours. Uh, and, and and Jesus, he, he knows why they're searching for him. Uh, and he starts to really hold their feet to the fire a little bit. And, and so in this passage, he's going to start thinning the herd. Now, Jesus... He doesn't mind attracting crowds. He does it a lot. But he's not about the crowd. He's not in it for likes and thumbs. There's something more profound that he's in it for, and he's, he's going to help them realize why they're in it. So just think through those, those types of statistics. 22% avidly committed, 19% moderately committed, 29% nominally committed. And, and just because Jesus makes these people wrestle with this, we're going to have to wrestle with it too. I, just last night I was doing some, some research and I found these, these quotes about what would be defined as nominal Christians. Randy Alcorn, great author, says this. A nominal Christian often discovers in suffering that his faith has been in something other than in Christ. As he faces evil and suffering, he may lose his faith. I have sympathy for people who lose their faith, but any faith lost in suffering wasn't a faith worth keeping. And for all of those, how many times have we been there that, you know, when the fit hits the shan and and, and stuff falls apart? we am thinking, God, what are you like? Really? I trust you, and this is how you're gonna throw down with me? Right? I don't know who said it, but but someone said this. A nominal Christian finds Christ useful. A true Christian finds Christ beautiful. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of times when, boy, we like the usefulness of God. And and, uh, we want Him to be useful for us, right? And He is, but when we come to Him because He's useful and not because He's beautiful, there's something profoundly Nominal about that. J.C. Ryle said this, it costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and to go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice, follow Christ, believe in Christ, confess Christ, requires much self-denial. So just think through that. Search for Christ, but why? Verse 26 and 27, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father, has placed His seal of approval. Jesus identifies something and he identifies the fact that they failed to see that their deepest need was spiritual and not physical. The problem with the hordes that were following him was that they had no dissatisfaction with their spiritual condition, nor a conviction of the seriousness of their sin. Jesus realizes this in them and he starts to press it in on them. He realized that, 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 that they're coming to him for, for their physical needs. And he's saying there's something so much more deeper. There, there's a profound need that you have that you're not recognizing yet. See, what they wanted was free food and free resources like, you know, we have in America. But he's, he, he's saying there's, there's more than what you're in need of. See, Jesus didn't come just simply to to purely meet our physical need, though he does, and oftentimes in in, in beautiful and profoundly gracious and generous ways. But that's not the deepest purpose why he came. And and sometimes that's where we stop, thinking that if he does that, we have all we need. See, and, and they missed the first stage of faith which is to have a deep and profound dissatisfaction for the spiritual condition and to be convinced of the seriousness of their sin. But see, this is where so many of us are. Because as long as we have our physical needs met, why am I going to be dissatisfied with my spiritual condition when my physical condition is met? And if God is blessing me physically, obviously I don't have a, 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 a serious sin. And we get duped. By God's grace, that's supposed to lead us to repentance, into thinking that our spiritual, spiritual condition is just fine. And these people are missing it. I wonder how often we do. Uh, you know, when's the last time if, if you claim Christ, when's the last time you were terribly mortified and dissatisfied with your current spiritual condition? When, when, when's the last time that you allowed yourself, that you allowed the, the Spirit of God to convict you of the seriousness of your own sin? And this is what Jesus is pressing in on them. He said, you're coming to me because you ate your fill. You were satisfied. And in your satisfaction, you denied the own seriousness of your sin. And because your your body was satisfied, there was no dissatisfaction with your spiritual condition. That's why Paul tells us in, in, in Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Like, Get your minds off of uh, the, the, the condition of, of, of the spiritual realm right now and get your minds drawn to heaven. Where you sit at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earthly things. When our minds are set on things above, we start to realize the reality of our own spiritual condition. And no matter how good it is, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying how good it is, is it ain't very good. <laughs> So maybe I am saying it's bad. (laughs) And so they asked him, verse 28, well, what do we have to do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, in, in verse 27, Jesus said, I don't know if you caught it, do not work for temporal stuff Work for bread that that uh, that lasts. They come back and say, What must you do to do the what? Work. They put an S on the end. What what do we have to do to the works that God requires? Jesus said, the work of God is this to believe. See, here's the trap they fill in. They fell into the trap of religion. Because religion says God requires of you: do this, do this, do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's what God requires. You better do those things. You better not do. It's a bunch of works, and just no, no, no. You missed it. It's not works. That's religion. It's the work of God, which is singular, which is to believe. Do you understand? But so many times we want to know the works that God requires of me. I need to make sure that I do this 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 and this so that. And God says, "No, no, 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 no. You believe. We have a you have a relationship with me by faith and because we have a relationship by faith, now you will do these things. But you don't do these things so that, you do these things because." See, honestly, we would almost prefer that there were works that God requires because that way we could keep our own little tally check marks of all the good things we've done. Because when I can keep a tally list of all the good things that I've done for God, I can compare it to your tally list. And I guarantee I'm gonna have a bigger tally list than most of you, right? And so Jesus is like, I don't want your works. I want your work which is to believe in me. See, they're they're getting caught up in the whole religion relationship thing. And and so Jesus goes on in verse, uh, or they go on in verse 30. So they ask him, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Are you? This is the day after Jesus did what? <laughs> this is the day after the few loaves and then the little fish multiplied to feed 20,000 people. And they have the gall, the audacity to say, Well, what mark sign are you going to do so that we will believe in you? What? What did he just do the very you know a day before? What was that? Chop liver? Give me a br- I mean how arrogant, huh? How freaking short sighted of him. I just did that for you yesterday, and today you're gonna to come to me and say, "Kelly, what are you gonna do? How bunch of nominal little followers, right? How us is that? Just take an inventory of all that God has done. And we have the audacity and the gall to sit back and say, okay, but what about now? Has He not done enough? They say, well, our forefathers ate man in the desert. Here's what I know. Please understand this. That miracles may not be convincing. That just because just God steps in and does something miraculous does not mean that, that you nor anybody else are going to be convinced. Sometimes it happens that way. But these people just experienced it the day before and still didn't believe. And so it's not that if God does something, you know, crazy, everybody's going, oh, this is fantastic. Sometimes they want to be, but also what they're saying, this is a super backhanded compliment. It's kind of a slam on Jesus. They just were fed food, bread the day before. And now they come back and say, yeah, that was great. That was a one time deal. Our forefathers got bread every day for 40 years. So Jesus, whoever you think you are, you don't hold a candle to Moses. So what you gonna do now? They got 40 years, we got one meal. Right? You ever try to hold God's feet to the fire like that? Careful before you answer too quickly. God, they're a lush and you bless them? God, that that, that guy over there? He, he doesn't work hard. He's a cheat. He's arrogant. And, and the blessing you gave him goes on and on and on? No? never, Never, never been there? What are you going to do now? Jesus is going to deal with them in a minute. but Let's just keep going through verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it, it, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So, so what he says, he says, look, though you may have received that bread from Moses' hand, it didn't come from Moses, it came from my Father. Because the Bible says that the father, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father's lights." Like God is the source. Don't get so focused on the resource that you miss the source. They were focused on the resource. What God could do for them right now and they missed the source of it all. And he said this true, but the bread, even the, the good stuff, that all comes from, from the Father's hand. But something greater than the man in the Old Testament's come it's me and I have come from the Father. Don't let. Here, here's how I understand this. Um. don't let temporal blessings confuse you away from your spiritual need. And, and see, this is what was happening. It so, says, so, yeah, you, you, you receive that bread and, and, and manna, your ancestors did, and, and you, you got bread yesterday. But don't let those temporal blessings confuse you from your spiritual need. Like realize there's something deeper that you're in need of. And so, verse 34. Sir, they said, from now on, give us that bread. What they're saying is, okay then, if it's so good, then we want sourdough every day. Like we've heard apple spice bread is really good. That would be great. Just every day. And they're completely missing what God's doing. Well, that's fine. Then you give us that every day. And so Jesus gets real plain with them. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will never go hungry and who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus flat out says, I am, which hearkens them back to the Old Testament when Moses is at the burning bush and Moses says, who will I tell Pharaoh has sent me? And God says, I am. It's the same thing. Jesus here is proclaiming, I am God. I'm not just the one who can give you bread when you're hungry, though I am that. I am more than that. I am God in the flesh. I am the bread of life. I'm not your resource. I am the source. And if you come to me, I will never drive you away. What he's saying is, I have the perpetual satisfaction for your every deepest need. I am. Your perpetual satisfaction of your deepest needs. I'm going to jump down to forty, 44 and forty four, uh, 40, 44. Watch this. Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone. The end of verse 45, everyone who listens to the father and learns from him comes to me. Jesus says, my father's will is that you all come to me. The Bible says that that God's will is that nobody perish, but all come to repentance. And and God's will is that every one of us come to Christ. But then God's design is that each of us have free will not to we got to understand that. God's will is that you come to Jesus. Believe. But God's design is that you have free will to not. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Father draws us to Jesus. So don't stop at religion. Don't stop with God, the big man upstairs, or the things of God. The goal is to draw you to Christ. Everyone who is drawn to God, the point is to get to Jesus. So if you have stopped short at God, at religion, at the things of God, just belief in the, you know, that there is a God, you've stopped short. The point is for you to come to Christ and believe. That's why John wrote the gospel. In the last last chapter, last, last verse, he says, these things were written that you might believe. It's about Jesus. And so he goes on to verse 49, watch this. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert and yet died. So this is where he now addresses what they said in verse 31. Remember back in verse 31, they said, our forefathers ate man of the desert. And so Jesus responds to now and he says, you're right, your forefathers ate man of the desert and then they died. Big, big deal. And so he presses back. And what he's saying is, Moses' work still led to death. My work will lead to life. Moses' death Moses' work led to death. My work leads to eternal life. And and his life is symbolized in the bread. Now he'll go on. Watch this, uh, verse 53. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just look at the words he's using. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Did you know that the early Christians were were, uh, accused of being cannibals because of this right here? Let me just say, these are some pretty strong weird words. I'm gonna be honest with you. You read this type of stuff, you're like, well, Jesus is kind of weird. see one of those like desert teachers that ate a bad mushroom, and he's like, hey. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you this: if you ever come to church here and I stand up here and say, Eat my flesh and drink my blood, hit the door real quick and never come back. This is some weird stuff. But he's trying to drive home the point. You want to talk about food? Well, I'll tell you then, eat my flesh. And what he's saying is, is ingest all of me into all of you. So I get to the deepest parts of you. That you dive into me and devour me into your life. My character into you. My heart into you. My kingdom, my will, my desire into you. Devour me. See, Jesus was referring, he was was referring back to Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11, that that the law was given to God's people that you don't eat uh, meat with the blood in it. Why? Because God says the life is in the blood. And so what Jesus is saying is unless you ingest all of me, you will never have eternal life because life is in the blood. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, like you, you don't get a, you don't get to spectate into the kingdom. You, you don't get to. If you really want to be my follower, you don't get to be a spectator to this Christian life thing. I want you to eat me, devour me. Don't come to me so I can give you a snack. I want you to eat my life. So when we do communion. That's why it's reserved for people who have a relationship with Jesus. Because we were doing in symbol what Jesus said to do. Like, take me into you. Into the deepest parts of you. See, here's, here's what's happening. He's drawing a correlation between Old Testament and New Testament. He's drawing a correlation he said, this is bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. He who feeds on this bread will live forever. This is what he's saying. This is a correlation. He's, he's making this correlation between the Old Testament manna and New Testament Jesus. And it looks like this. Manna, Old Testament death, Jesus, New Testament life. It's the difference between religious law and grace. He's so saying, you can do it the old school way. That manna, it'll sustain you for a day. That law, you can try to obey it for a day and it's going to lead to death because you're going to soon realize that you're hungry again because the law doesn't satisfy you. Yeah? Religion doesn't satisfy. You're hungry for more. He says the difference is me. Life. Because it's grace. It's not what do, 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 do. It's done. So just absorb me. You follow me so far. So, verse sixty. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, "It's a hard teaching. Who can accept this?" Like they're like, what? "This just got real." Like we we like showing up when we want to show up. We like doing what we want to do when we want to do it. We like you stepping in and meeting some needs for us. But this stuff you're talking about? Like a nominal Christianity feels really comfortable. We don't mind that. But this stuff? When you're talking about a real commitment here, right? Right? See, see what, what was happening is they wanted the stuff but not the seriousness. Does that make sense? I'm thankful none of us have ever been there, but other people I've heard are. We want the stuff. We don't always want the seriousness of it. Like, Don't press me too hard. I'll find a better option somewhere. I like the nominality of my face. It's easy. <laughs> That's what Jesus does. This guy. Sometimes I just want to hang out like before he was crucified. Like with that Jesus, that'd be fun. because I mean, he just getting a ball rolling, so he didn't mind... I just, he just, he's funny sometimes. Now where his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, what? Does this trigger you? (laughs) That's what he says. Oh, I get triggered. You need to go to a safe place and hold some puppies? Can you see Jesus being like that? Like he's like, oh please. Little pansy, you upset now? You offended too. Here's what this is what Jesus does. Jesus will push our buttons in order to get us to Him. He doesn't mind doing that. That's why I like opening the Bible. But here's the problem. When I open this, inevitably, <laughs> this is why I don't like being a teacher or a preacher of the Bible. Because God always deals with t- teacher before he teaches. And I'm just telling you, it's not always fun. Because he pushes my buttons to get me to him too. And sometimes I like, God, I like, sometimes I like my nominality. <laughs> It, it you I I guarantee you, I know that there's someone who who has heard me talk about those nominal statistics and those nominal quotes and we're a little bit offended by that. <laughs> weren't you? I know some of you. Like I've been a Christian longer than you've been alive. Well, not many of it, because I'm, I'm pretty old now, but You don't know how I feel about Jesus. I love him in my heart. I don't serve every day. i got so much going on in my life. I don't serve regularly, but don't don't fault me for that. Don't give me all those things. That's what someone else said about nominal, because that's not me. You don't know my love for my Savior. I get it. You were triggered. Jesus is like, what is your problem? Verse 63, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and their life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray him. This amazes me. Jesus knew from the beginning which one of his closest 12 was going to betray him. Here's here's why this amazes me. is because Jesus chose them. And he knew from the beginning Who Judas was and what Judas was going to do. And he chose him anyway. And nowhere in the Bible do we see Jesus confronting him, shaming him, demeaning him, or withholding his love, mercy, or grace from him. Amazes me. Jesus knew that this was going to happen because Jesus knew the scriptures. Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Jesus knew the prophecy in the Psalms about Judas. It was Jesus' words who said at the Last Supper, the one who dips the bread in the cup after me is the one who will betray me. He knew it. And he chose him and loved him and was merciful and gracious to him. You know, Jesus knows who you are. He knows what you're going to do. Jesus knows who I am. He knows what I've done. He knows what I'm going to do. And you know what? He chooses me and he loves me anyway. And he chooses you and loves you anyway. Knowing full well. And he died for all of it ahead of time. Coming to Him in belief and faith has given you forgiveness already, but without Him you stand condemned. He's such a good God, but when I look at that too, and I see it says He knew from the beginning which to Him and who would betray Him. And then I realized how gracious and merciful and patient he was with Judas. And you know what I thought? I thought, how different am I than he? Because how quickly do I write people off because of their offense of me? Right? All it takes. I heard they said. I saw them post. You know what they said about my child? I'm done. I'm done. Right? Right? And yet Jesus chooses Judas and continues to be merciful and gracious to him. How different is he than we? For it's a scripture that says, pray for those who persecute you. Love love your enemies. Be good to those who are mean to you. Forgive 70 times 7. Right? Right? Verse 66, from this time, many of the other disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They they couldn't contend with it. From this time, a lot of them turned back. And so I I asked myself this question What does it take to make me turn back? Or what does it take to make me a nominal follower of Jesus? What's it take? Where's the tipping point for you? What's it take to make you. Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9.12 talks about the Israelites as they were leaving the promised land. They had seen God's hand through the plagues and Him keeping them safe from them all. They had seen God's hand move Pharaoh to let them go. They had seen God's hand cause Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt to give them all of their wealth. They had seen God's hand split the Red Sea. They had seen God's hand lead them across the Red Sea towards the promised land. They had seen all those miracles of God. And yet in Deuteronomy 9, it tells us that it only took 40 days for them to turn back. Moses was up on the mountain talking with God for 40 days, and it took 40 days for them to say, okay, we're done, we're tapping out. Later in John 12, we'll see that all these miracles that Jesus performs before people, they see all these miracles and the Bible says, yet they still did not believe. What's it take to make you turn back? What's it take to make you just, nah, I'm, I'm not that excited about. And so Jesus says in verse 67, well, you don't want to leave too, do you? Now, now this is is one of those pointed things that the disciples, they're still stuck around. And he said, and he looks at them. He says, I know you're standing with me right now. You're not going to leave too, are you? See, the thing I love about it is Jesus forces us to come face to face with the weakness of our own faith. He forces us to come face to face. What's going to make you turn around? What's going to make you deny? What's going to make you turn back? What's going to make you? How many problems are you going to have to face before you say, "Okay, I'm done with you, Jesus"? You going to stick with me through it all? So Simon Peter speaks up, "Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God." And now, when, when formerly when I read that verse, I think, "Ah, I love that! Like, where else we're going to go? You're it." But think about what he's saying. Where else can we go? Because if there's someone else, I'll go. If there's somewhere else to look, I'll look. And, and, and if we're honest with you, that's where, where so many of us get. God, I'm going to follow you. But when, the, when I'm pressed and I feel like I'm crushed, please, someone tell me where else to look because I'll look. Right? Like, give me a better option. Because if you got a better option for me than grunting through this with Jesus, I'll take a better option. And that's why so many people, that when it gets really hard and and it doesn't feel like God's coming through, walk away. Because they're convinced there's got to be a better option somewhere. And Peter says, look, if there's a better option, we'll go. But I realize, and he realizes, where else am I going to go? You have the words. Of it. And Peter's like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving you. And he didn't. Until one night by a fire, the night of the crucifixion. And the thing I love about Jesus is that even when we walk away, he comes to us and draws us to repentance and restoration. Because as he's already said, he will in no way drive out. And Peter realizes that every option is going to disappoint. And so he says, I'm going to stick with you. Let me just wrap up with verse 70. It says, well, let me say this about verse 69. He says, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You know why he says we believe? Because of what Jesus said in verse 29. The work of God is to believe. So Jesus says, we believe. We, we're, we're in. He said, we believe because Jesus had just said the work of God is to believe. And so Peter says, I'm doing the work that you asked me to do, which is just to believe. And then let me wrap up with this. In verse 70, Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. I just this is a this is a, a, a joyful verse for me. This is a happy verse for me. Uh, and here's why. Because eventually I will betray him. And he still chooses me and loves me. Do you understand that? And the same goes for you in spite of what you've already done, advance of what you will do. He chooses you and he loves you. This gives me great hope. Because all he does is wait for me to respond to his love. I don't know how you could come in contact and understanding of that. And for the rest of your Christian experience, live a nominally committed life. I don't. And and so I want to leave you with a word of grace that says even in your denial, Jesus loves you and pursues you and has chosen you And the only thing he's asked is that you believe. I want to help you. And so I want to encourage you. To ask the Holy Spirit. To give you a profound dissatisfaction. For your current spiritual condition. And don't be afraid. Of that conviction. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a profound dissatisfaction for your own spiritual condition and to give you a seriousness about your sin. I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask the Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin, my lethargy, my apathy, my complacency, my pride of thinking i got nothing to uh, repent of. And give me a profound dissatisfaction for my current spiritual condition. Here's why. Because when you are profoundly dissatisfied with your own current spiritual condition, and when you have a deep grasp on the seriousness of your sin, then and only then can you realize how profound and beautiful His grace is. That in the midst of that, in the midst of everything you've done, in advance of everything you will do, To have a deep remorse for your own spiritual condition. Then you realize how beautiful is God's grace. That he will in no way chase you away. But will pursue you and love you and pour his grace on you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. The worst thing someone can do is not acknowledge their own sin. And be dissatisfied with their spiritual condition. Because the more you realize that, the more grace is poured out. Do you understand? This is a good and happy occasion. It probably doesn't feel like that because you've been so brainwashed into behavior. And it feels so foreign to you because grace is foreign to you. I don't want it to be foreign anymore. So pray with me. I'll give you a chance in this moment just to do business with the Holy Spirit. And I'd encourage you if you so choose, to say, Holy Spirit, give me a deep dissatisfaction for my current spiritual condition. Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin. My lethargy, my apathy, my complacency, my pride in thinking I got nothing to repent of. Convict me of my nominal faith. I've wanted the stuff, but not the seriousness. I've abused your grace, and I'm sorry. Understand, just ask Holy Spirit, I give you permission right now, in the Spirit, to just. To convict me of that in me. Not so that I'll be destroyed. Not so that I'll be shamed. But so I can repent. And experience the magnitude and the beauty of your grace. Oh, Father. Where our sin abounds, let your grace abound more. Though there might be joy. uh, 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 That there might be joy in, in the midst of mourning. Sorrow for a moment over our sin. Great joy forever in your presence. Tell them, I give you permission, God. To give me a deep satisfaction for my own spiritual condition and the seriousness of my sin. And I repent. Give me all that your mercy and grace will allow me. Tell them, say, thank you that you've chosen me. Thank you that you pursued me. Thank you that you're lo- you love me and there's nothing I can do to walk out of that love. I accept it and I receive it. Thank you for making me part of your family. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now listen, Here, here's my desire for us. That we live in that state of repentance. Both joyful for what God has done, but also dissatisfied with our own spiritual condition. But in the dissatisfaction of that causing us joy because of the grace that we get to live in. It's awesome. And in that is great freedom. Do you understand? Yeah. I love you, and it's good for us to open up this book together. You got people in your life, in your huddle who don't go to church yet who need to meet Jesus. Introduce them to Jesus and introduce them to his church. I love you. Let's sing a little bit.